Welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Thomas Simonsen Balmbra. And my name is Svarogor. And today we are discussing the 1997 movie Funny Games by Mikael Haneke, starring Suzanne Lothar as Anna, Ulrich Mieha as Georg, and they are the parents of the family in this movie, Stefan Klapczynski as Georg Jr., Arno Frisch as Paul and Frank Gehring as Peter, the two guys who break into this family vacation home. And the cinematography is by Jürgen Jürges. So the story of this is quite simple. It's kind of Hanukkah's take on the home invasion movie. Specifically the sort of American thriller home invasion genre. Yeah, and it's about a family, mother, father and their young son, traveling out to their vacation home. And two young men who start to interfere lightly, first borrowing stuff and then intruding more and more on the social space before they use violence to force themselves into a situation and set up a, a series of games or situations that they're supposed to play out, subsequently murdering the family and going over to a new one. So that's kind of the basic setup of the film. Yeah, and I would say an element of it is that it takes part in sort of upper-class Austrian society, and the intruders are also upper-class. There is no, like, class distinction, which is something that Mikhail Haneke found very important to do as a subversion of the more common thriller trope where some sort of criminal lowlife breaks in at a wealthy sort of establishment or whatever. Well, I'd say the family themselves are higher middle class, aspiring towards upper class. It shows this quite clearly in the beginning of the film, where you have a camera tracking their car from above, kind of shining light with classical music playing along. And they have this guessing game where they're trying to test each other whether or not they know the classical piece and composer. It's almost parodically bourgeois. Like they listen to classical music, mm. they play golf, they have a vacation. Like it's very clearly setting up the sort of class structure they're from. That's what I mean. They're aspiring towards high culture, not entirely in it. And also you can see the car that they're driving. It's kind of like this square family car. Well, it's a Range Rover, so it's often been connected with the upper class, especially in England. I would call it a class for upper class people who want to appear more uh, outdoorsy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they do have money. I mean, they have a big vacation. Yeah, but they're not ridiculously rich. I would say you're right. They look like a, a normal, nice family in a way, like their values and the way they act and their interests. While these two young guys, they seem to come from privilege just by the mannerisms. There's like small elements of how they dress and how they act, which is just a little... It just seems like the study at expensive schools and that sort of stuff. Yeah, uh, some economy majors yeah. or, or something like that. And they're dressed to like tee off, like yeah. they're dressed to golf or for a tennis match or whatever. They seem very clearly like born into privilege. Mm. Or at least that's the impression you get. Of course, as the movie sort of goes along, they sort of really play with mm. their backstories and stuff. I would also say that Michael Haneke has said in an interview that they're backgrounds are almost irrelevant yeah. throughout the movie they keep changing names and stuff mm -hmm. because they're sort of interchangeable it's not really important who they are they could be anybody that's at least Hanukkah's take on yeah. who they are 
It's interesting to look closer at the introduction, I think, because it starts actually with a game between the family, which is very innocent, guessing their music, and that kind of places them culturally, and you don't see them initially. The camera's placed far away, and we hear their voices, so we understand it's a man and woman, and then we hear their young son, so we understand it's a family, and the camera jumps in and shows the hand placing a new CD into the car stereo. Like in all his films, the camera is often quite fixated on the doing of things, like hands acting out and acting then the camera turns to them and we see internal in the car and suddenly the music switches from this you know nice classical music into this extremely intense wild and chaotic piece by John Zorn called Bonehead from the album Naked City it sounds like just crazy metal music sounds like the kind of music that parents would never want their children to listen to <laughs> but it's not diegetic it's not the music they're listening to diegetic and non-diegetic that means whether or not the sound is coming from the situation between the people or from more the filmatic perspective like a soundtrack that the characters can't hear but we as audience can hear it right and it comes as soon as the title comes yeah. funny games and the sort of metal music starts playing immediately you're yeah. shown that there's this other level to the movie that you have to sort of operate on two different levels when it comes to what's going on in the movie and you're also watching a movie yeah it's very interesting you know it looks very similar to ben's video which we talked about before it has the same kind of font it takes a lot of place here it's a lot more intrusive though and there's a level of humor to it or, or mischievousness i would say because this music is super intense and filled with shrieks and wildness and the title is almost in quotation marks i mean it's not funny for most of the people involved and they're not really games per se but what it does, it immediately puts us, as you say, into the mindset that there's something really uncomfortable and weird going on. Like, we're working on several levels here. Yeah, and it does also remind me a bit of, uh, is it I Stand Alone? With the same sort of really yeah, intense yeah, yeah, title yeah. sequence with yeah. like loud music. And I don't know, I really like it. I think huh? the opening sequence in this movie is just great. It yeah. just really sets the tone. Yeah. And it's visually cool too. I, yeah, I like it on a lot of yeah. different levels. The title also kind of cuts so harshly into the very realistic, you know, it's a big bold font in bright red colour. It just cuts into the visual style and like into the image. Yeah, placed over this incredibly day-to-day, -day, yeah, mundane, uh, mundane situation <laughs> is really nicely juxtaposed. Yeah, and then we see the car come up to a driveway and the music cuts and they shout out to their neighbours. And it's a slightly unsettling scene, like... They're asking the neighbors about yeah coming over to help with the boat and whatever. And they seem a bit preoccupied. Yeah, and they seem to be referring to these two young guys standing there, who, Anna and George, they don't know who this is. And it seems a bit weird, but so they say, hey, come over in a few minutes, help with the boat, whatever. And they drive along and then they talk a little about the slight weirdness of that situation, but they kind of explain it away. And uh, yeah, doesn't he have like a son at that age or something? Um, I love that because like from the very first scene you see them interacting with someone else outside the family, mm. there is this sense of something strange, yeah. something's a bit not right. That just basically keeps escalating throughout yeah. the movie. And I love the sort of slow boil mm -hmm. of the continuing escalation of transgressiveness yeah. that goes on. It's really like almost linear in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I like things happen eventually, but the way that sort of builds in the beginning of the movie is really, really beautifully done. Yeah, it starts so mundane. One of the first situations is one of the young men knocking on the door and asking to borrow some eggs. Yeah, they're just getting settled in to their summer house. 
And uh, yeah, he, he says he, he comes from the neighbors, right? And yeah. yeah, he's asking on some eggs on their behalf. And uh, kind of referring to, yeah, you just saw us. We were standing there with him just now. And okay, so that's fine. Uh, yeah. she, she welcomes him in. And he's kind of, he seems... He seems a bit simple. A bit oh. off too, actually. He's a little bit humble, a bit kind of like a young guy, not so secure in himself. Uh, he's kind of apologizing and quite clumsy. Uh, so after she gives him the eggs, he manages to drop them on the ground and they break. And this creates a situation where at first he laughs a bit, says that's no trouble, but his clumsiness sort of starts to escalate in a way. And we can see him let loose a grin behind a back. And you notice like the first time when he takes his hand up that he's wearing this golf gloves. Yeah. And that just seems off somehow. That's just a tiny detail that just feels immediately feel that this guy, something wrong, something really wrong about There's him. There's a lot of sort of micro movements and very small stuff he does that makes it sort of, he seems a bit off. There's yeah. something off about the situation, but it's not very obvious. It's mm. quite subtle. Mm. And then right after he drops the eggs, he's like, oh, I'm so clumsy. Oh, I must have been more with two left hands or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And he asks for more eggs. Yeah. And she's like, we're having guests over tomorrow. They might want eggs for breakfast. And he's like, oh, yeah. But I saw you had a 12 pack. So you have eight <laughs> eggs. So can I just have four more eggs? Yeah. And it's like, socially, that's really daft, right? Yeah. You wouldn't do that. But maybe yeah. he's just a, a bit of a simpleton mm. or just has a lot of privilege. Mm. And, and just, yeah. So that sort of escalates the tension. Yeah. But the situation itself is sort of normal and quite like silly and yeah mundane and uh... but just these slight intrusions that just as you say they start on a very basic level and just like normal social interactions kind of a bit like okay it was clumsy that's stupid uh, okay maybe i'll give him some more eggs yeah shall i pack them in for you no you don't need to oh maybe you should anyway yeah, right. and he's kind of always pushing that border for social conformity just a little bit all yeah, the time it's always like escalating this sort of transgressiveness mm. in small micro transgressions mm. and i would also say he is a stranger there's like seemingly this connection with mm. the neighbors but they don't really know him yeah, like there yeah. is this strange man in their house yeah. so there is this veneer of social acceptableness because he's seemingly like a friend or like a friend of the family mm. next door or whatever but in reality he's just a stranger to them mm. so there is that tension underlying mm. the sort of social niceties mm. on top. Yeah, he takes his place very much for granted. Yeah. Like it should be, and of course, as if he was a close friend. That's also part of why they feel a bit privileged. They take their situation for granted in a way that's initially just a little bit odd, but becomes more and more troublesome. Yeah, I was also say that Frank Gehring is really excellent in the yeah. way he plays this character. Yeah. He's sort of misplaced, sort of weird, sort of mm. bumbling, mm. but also seemingly like there's some underlying thing going on, like a bit manipulative. Absolutely. The more you get to see him, the more you feel it like, I'm not sure he's necessarily actually clumsy. I think he's no. probably very precise. And they have an interaction between them, the two characters, and you can almost feel that this is something created. What would they look like outside of this kind of context? Right. And you feel like that sort of realization mm. grows on you mm. as you keep watching them interact. Because it becomes apparent that it is their sort of transgressiveness with the family is really funny to them. Like mm. it's, yeah. It is like a funny game to them, <laughs> yeah. the way they treat the family. And Mikael Honecke talks about how he wanted this very specifically, that the sort of the two guys, the intruders, they're in a different play mm. than the family. Mm. Yeah. They are basically two stereotypical, like almost comedic characters. Mm. 
this bumbling, slightly more chubby guy and this sort of a bit more smart, thinner, almost like a comedic duo. Yeah, that's true. And they don't react to any of the horrors they cause at all. And he also talks about how that is part of why people find it so horrible. It's because real evil is often just gleefully, you know, violent. Mm. It's and reveling in it. Mm. It's not reflective at all. It's mm. just people having a really good time, which I remember feeling very strongly when we watched Come and See. Yeah, I was about to mention actually. <laughs> uh, the way evil often is just reveling in transgressiveness and not even seeing it as bad because you don't really feel it emotionally because you might have like the emotions aren't there because you're a psychopath or a sociopath or whatever. And that feels very real in a sense that psychopathic killers in, in thrillers often don't because they have like grand plans or they have like some trauma or motive yeah or motive but these guys don't really have that they're just having a good time being horrible and it's similar also to Solo like come and see in Solo they, yeah, they're yeah. like the people who perpetrate the monstrous behavior they're quite silly they display stupidity in their acts like they remove seriousness and as you say self-reflexiveness and they play games like in come and see they're drunk stupid rowdy in Salo, they almost all have their own game, these four heads of state that allow themselves to transgress upon the youth in these intense ways. They're playful and strange, and Funny Games fits well into that. As you say, they are almost from a different movie, and that also reflects on how they relate to the audience. The one character that Arnold Fritz, Paul, as he's sometimes called, he breaks the fourth wall on several occasions, winking to the camera and commenting to us directly, is this what you want as an audience? Or we're not film feature length yet, so we can't end. But the other character, Peter, he does reflect over like, let's say, genre elements. Like there's some awareness of the media context, but not of us as an audience. Yeah, I think specifically at one point when George says, why don't you just kill us and get it over with? He says like, what's the entertainment value in that? So mm. there's clearly that aspect. I think that's that's him saying that. And then later on, when he's tying up Anna or something, he says, this is just as unpleasant to me. So yeah, really, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. just contradicting himself <laughs> yeah. and they're just having fun tormenting them <laughs> and playing on different emotional angles. But coming back to Breaking the Fort Wall and stuff, mm. that was actually, I think, in part inspired by this movie that Mikael Haneke saw in the 70s called oh, really? Tom Jones, which was not this type of movie at all. I think it was some sort of grand like action-adventure sort of Okay. Uh, I haven't seen it, I'm just referring to what Mikael Haneke said in this interview. But apparently in one of those big set-piece scenes, the main character turns towards the camera and says, Oh, I hope they don't catch me. And then he keeps going. And so he found that very fascinating and had been thinking about it for 20 years before mm. he started adopting these things into the movie. And the, the original idea for the script is also really old. He started thinking about, and I think he actually wrote the first edition of this script in like 1968 or 69. Oh, oh really? And there was a quite different story back then. It was basically this home intruder or some guy who had done something criminal, basically hiding out in the summer house. Mm. And the family comes and there's this big drama and eventually the wife shoots the man. It was a much more traditional sort of thriller, mm. uh, shocking movie. But he went through a lot of iterations. So it was a really like long process to get to the sort of finished point of the script. It's interesting. There was a lot of impulses going into this thing. 
He also wrote an essay leading up to the release of Funny Games called Violence and the Media, where he talks about the impetus, like things he's been thinking of, how he's relating to the discussion of violence in media. And he has a few points of that I thought was really quite interesting. He starts off talking about that one often kind of initiates this debate by either blaming the real world, because it actually contains violence, so we represent it, or the media as a representative body, right? And he calls it a, a chicken or egg situation. His point of view that it's, of course, both are responsible for the portrayals of brutalism and violence. Like You can't really concentrate on one or the other. And he's much more preoccupied not by whether you show violence, but like the form of representation. And he's concerned about whether or not you're aware of what the medium of film does to you. I mean, clearly, considering the movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. These are the thoughts that he's harboring in preparation for the film, I think. So he talks about very early cinema. You already have some inherent violence. Just being introduced to cinema form, like the famous example is the Lumiere brothers. The train arrives at the station. People see the train coming. They're scared and they're running away, you know. Sound and picture interacting in a way that's initially quite frightening because it breaks a sense of reality. Yeah, right. Like that was one of the first unpleasant movies. And uh, you, know, you had to like throw yourself down on the ground. It was very... Very transgressive first time. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yes, you are. But Tim brings it up as an example of the potential intensity of film. Yeah, and that's a valid point. He talks a bit about the difference between a still image, a picture, and film. And he says some interesting things like the still image generally shows like the result of an action, an action's result, where the film shows the action itself, something ongoing. That's the time element. And the example it takes is something like Apocalypse Now, where you have this amazing scene with the helicopters going and Ride of the Valkyries by Wagner, which kind of implicates us as viewers as well, because it's extremely engaging emotionally. It doesn't necessarily hide the form of film, but it uses the form of film to engage us emotionally in something that's really quite problematic. Warfare in its extreme self-glorifying nature. I mean, you can safely call the Vietnam War problematic. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely not like uh, World War II or something where the stakes are a bit simpler in terms of you know, traditional view of good and bad. Now, I'm just going to quote him directly here, where he said something that I thought was quite interesting. Will you yeah. do it in a German accent? Maybe I will. Yeah, so he talks about how can I return the lost value of authenticity to representation, or to put it in a different way, how do I give the viewer the chance to recognize this loss of reality and his own implication in it, thus emancipating him from being a victim of the medium to its potential partner? The question is not, what am I allowed to show? But rather, what chance do I give the viewer to recognize what it is I am showing? The question limited to the topping of violence is not, how do I show violence? But rather, how do I show the viewer his own position via the violence and its portrayal? For this purpose, one must find forms if one wants to avoid having the Enlightenment's dedication to humanity, which the media so opportunistically parrot, degraded into cynical hypocrisy. And I kind of feel that reveals his perspective. I mean, it's not exactly patronizing, but he has kind of a moralistic agenda in a sense. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting compared to a lot of the other directors we've talked about. Mm. He's very explicitly high-minded about why he makes movies and, yeah. and his reasoning for making certain choices in his movies. And it can come off as a bit patronizing and didactic and 
film theoretical and stuff. Of course, his movies are really good. So <laughs> that criticism is both valid and not always that important when watching his movies, I feel. Um, well, they always feel very well thought out. They're conceptually very sound. Totally. And his point of view is very humanistic. So it's easy to agree with them on like a theoretical level, whether or not you like them. Right. But there's also this nagging feeling that just enjoying a movie for its own sake, that's a bit lowbrow for Hanukkah. <laughs> Right. I'm sure he does enjoy some films for his own sake, but for the act of creation, I think having a political impetus or like an agenda that's, as you say, high minded in a way, it's always laid with intention. I think that's important. And I respect that. Yeah, totally. I respect that. But at the same time, like, do you have to every time you want to watch something with violence, you have to sort of face yourself as you're, as you're sort of interacting with this violence? Yeah. It is very interesting to think about and talk about. But at the same time, I don't think you're always in the mood for that. But I would say that even if he has this intention with Funny Games, for instance, it's a really entertaining movie. Yeah. And I think you can definitely watch it without coming face to face with your own like demons considering oh, sure. how you sort of interact with violence and media and stuff. I think a lot of people just like it because it's a really good movie. Yeah, I mean, it is quite uneasy. It has a lot of great physical acting. Just a little bit of violence can cause a lot of inability to walk and sweat. And it feels... You know, in, in most films, someone, they fall from three meters and they get up and they run away or whatever. That's not the case with Haneke. You know, even small violence does have physical consequence. So it's more uneasy than a lot of cinema. Yeah, and it's really not about quantity. And it's also very explicit about that too. Talking about the movie, he does say like, You'll probably find more violence in like a Saturday Night Cop show yeah. than this. But it's framed in a way that's quite different. And I think particularly like the way Arno Frisch and Frank Gehring sort of portray these two psychopaths has a lot to do with it. Especially the sense that they have absolutely no morality involved in this. They're just having fun. And that is so starkly different than the way it's usually portrayed, right? Mm -hmm. So you have this sense of almost personal transgression when you view this mm. because you don't really have the motives. There's no motive for this. Mm. It seems like truly like random acts of violence mm. and brutality in the same way that Salo also feels very transgressive in the sense that you don't really feel that these characters have motivations for being so atrocious. Yeah, they do play a lot of power games. There's a lot of games in this movie. Yeah, and for example, they use a lot of name-calling where they call each other Peter and Paul initially, but on a fish, Paul starts calling the other guy Tom, and then they, now and again they call themselves Tom and Jerry. And then on occasion, they both call the parents and themselves Beavers and Butthead. Yeah. And the interchangeability of names and identity, it's used in a way to break down identity and sense of self. Yeah, in a way that's almost reminiscent of sort of mind-breaking techniques. Yeah. Like he calls the father Captain, yeah. he calls the son Little Rabbit or mm. whatever. Like your identity just disappears. Because a lot of the terror and horrificness of the way they treat the family is psychological. Mm -hmm. They play a lot of these funny mind games mm. with the family. And that's almost equally as horrific as the actual violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if this has just been a social situation where there hadn't been any violence, and let's say they'd been just in a party and they'd been talking to each other and they started using names in that way, it would feel really uneasy, you know. It would be transgressive. But what's interesting is what you said. They are playing with power dynamics, but they're not invested in the values we normally would associate with that. They're not out to get their money. And, you know, they set up a scene which maybe starts to look 
sexual where they start talking about the wife. You know, she's looking pretty good. She doesn't have any flabby bits to her. And the other guy says, ah, I don't know, I'm not convinced. And they sort of play this little game again and they force the husband to tell her to undress, which is deeply <laughs> disturbing. And initially she does as they start to torture the son a little bit. They put a pillowcase over his head and then we don't see exactly what they do. Maybe they're twisting his arm or something. But the son is screaming a little bit and stuff. So she undresses, but the camera doesn't show us her body. And once she's done it, they're completely disinterested. They ask her to put her clothes on. It's only for a moment, really. Yeah, and it's clearly not about sex or sexuality or anything. It's just about humiliating. It's not a fetishistic no. power dynamic. And as a matter of fact, later on in the film, after they've apparently left, we do see part of her upper torso partially undressed, but it's super mundane. And the bodily aspect, I feel like Haneke did that as in a way to offset our own potential, let's say, fetishistic or... The titillation. Titillation, yeah. yeah. Sort of, yeah, fetishization. He's actually very explicit about this and talks about it. Because showing something directly to him in a sort of a violent or transgressive way mm. is pornographic to him. Mm -hmm. So he's with intention not showing it, not mm. giving the viewer satisfaction, mm. but also to keep a certain respect on the situation. An example he uses is there's this 10 minute long scene shot in one take after the son is killed. Yeah. And it's shot in like a full frame from a distance. Yeah, it's almost like a painting. Yeah, it's not close up. But the parents' reactions are incredibly heartbreaking. Mm. And it was a very difficult scene to shoot. Mm. And one of the reasons he chose to shoot it that way from a distance was he wanted to give them respect and let them have their decency. And he didn't want to sort of fetishize their despair and anguish. So he was very, very explicit about how he chooses not to show certain things, which is very interesting in the way that we've discussed these sort of issues previously. Mm. And I think you and me often agree that it can be very, very honest and not pornographic mm. to, to actually show something, mm -hmm. but it depends on the context. Yeah. But I think to Mikael Haneke, he often chooses, he's quite careful actually, and mm. he's quite respectful towards his uh, actors and stuff. Mm. And that's also one of the things Arno Frisch talks about in an interview he did in 2018, I think where he talks about that the on-set atmosphere was quite good, yeah. but they were also quite separated from the family. Mm. Him and Frank, they had a quite good rapport and stuff, mm. but after they shot scenes with Ulrich and Susan, they sort of let them go and be with themselves mm. for a while. They didn't sort of intrude or talk a lot to them. Mm. They let them have their space. Mm -hmm. And it was also very explicit. Mikael Haneke, he wanted the two guys to play basically in a different movie. And actually, he was very explicit about them being almost sarcastic characters in the sort of way they act. Mm. But he also was very careful. And that's actually quite interesting because in the script, the first thing Arno Fischer read actually was this bold sort of direction to them too, like as actors, to not be sarcastic in the way they say their lines and stuff because their actions are already so sort of on the nose that he wanted them to play in a way that didn't sort of build up under that. He wanted it to sort of stand on its own. And he walks a very fine line in this movie mm -hmm. because a lot of it is so on the nose, mm -hmm. so like very explicit in the way it sort of deals with the audience and stuff. I mean, it's really marvelous act of balancing the way he's sort of <laughs> making all this work. Mm -hmm. And it works beautifully. It really does. And the script was apparently, there was no improvisations or anything. The script is followed yeah. to the letter, like it does in all these movies, as yeah, far as I, I know. So. And it really shows what a sort of good piece of craftsmanship this is from everyone involved with mm. it. The acting is so good too, like mm. on all different levels. And and this element that you mentioned, it really is not just a visual motif, but like a recurring filmatic intent that he uses 
whether or not you see something. A lot of his films is very explicit, often things that happen out of frame. Either you understand it through sound or implication, where the camera looks, the eye of the camera, of the audience, is extremely specific and he makes you aware of that, often by having things happen of great intensity and importance happen outside of our direct line of sight. Yeah, like in Benny's video, the murder, for instance, happens mm. just out of sight. Mm. But at the same time, like the audio and, and the way the camera is placed in the room, mm. it really puts you there atmospherically, like spatially almost. Yeah. So you're forced to partake in these horrific actions that yeah. are going on in a way almost by omission. It's very well done. I think choosing to not show something is quite difficult to pull off in a way that feels satisfying in a movie. And the space becomes very charged. He manages to activate the physical space of the area through like the lens of the camera in a very interesting way. Mm. Like this scene that you talked about when the sun gets shot happens off camera. The family has been captured. They're sitting in the living room. And Paul, Arnold Fritsch's character, goes into the kitchen to make some food. While he's there, there's a scuffle in the living room and we hear a shot go off. And he's very calm. He doesn't really pay much mind. I mean, he's calm throughout the movie. Well, that's one exception. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he's finishing preparing his food and he comes into the living room. But the camera then goes to the television screen, which is now covered in blood. So we realize someone's been shot and we know it's not her. And the television show, which is this racing show, I think, uh, like a sports car race thing. And TV is covered in blood dripping down. And then we just hear the sound of the two guys saying, oh, now you've been clumsy. You shot the guy. You shouldn't shoot him in the head. You can kind of ruin it now. Well, let's just go. There's no more fun to be had. So let's leave. And we don't see them leave. We just hear them leave. But it's quite clearly that they do physically leave. Then the camera jumps back to this image that you described. Yeah, this 10 minute long scene. Yeah, which is this very sort of composed view of the entire living room. And the one corner we can see the sun lying on the floor and his head seems to be utterly destroyed. And there's blood up against the wall over the television screen. Yeah, super macabre. And we just see the parents quite still, just micro movements. Yeah. And eventually the wife starts to move a little bit and she gets up. I mean, she's, she's bound, so she can't move very well. But she managed to stand up and goes over to the television screen and turns off the really intrusive sound of this car race. And she goes into the kitchen to find something to help herself get up. And then we're just dwelling on the father. And he, like in a state of shock, almost not doing anything. And he gradually grasps the situation and this is so well acted. Yeah, it's actually incredible and heartbreaking. Yeah, and he just gradually comes into this hysteria of sadness and starts to cry and shake. And he's really quite helpless because his foot at this point and his arm are quite badly damaged. Yeah, and it's just primal. And so she comes in and she helps him stand up with a bit of trouble and they kind of walk out of the living room. And this walk which is really painful and slow. And this is, as I said before, this is great physical acting. Like, it looks so believable. Like, the struggle of getting up and just taking a small step, it's, it's painful, it's slow. All of these different compositions with their characters moved around, they're like a painting. They're, like, beautifully composed. Yeah, it's beautiful. That was the third take. And mm. they only did three takes of mm. this. Just super impressive performance there. Yeah. 
There's a couple of things about the situation previous to this that I would like to mention. Yeah. The sort of TV screen splattered with mm, blood yeah. while there's some mindless <laughs> entertainment going yeah, on. Yeah. The visual symbolism of that is almost like funnily on the nose, I think. Yeah. And the way she turns it off mm. afterwards, like, this is garbage. Yeah. And also before that, you've had Peter, the kind of, he's not really chubby, but Paul keeps calling him fatty anyway. Uh, there's some abusive behavior going between them. That might also be a game or it might be real. We don't know. Anyway, he's kind of just sitting watching television, flicking the screens while the family's bound up before. So there's very explicitly this critique of mindless entertainment. Yeah, <laughs> which was also his project in Benny's video, right? Yeah. I think it's a game between them. Like it's yeah. good cop, fat cop or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the general premise. I mean, like, there's several situations like that where they're talking about the backstory of Peter or Tom, as he's sometimes called as well. Where Paul says, yeah, well, because the father asks, why are you doing this? And then he looks over at Peter and he says, why are you doing this? Why don't you tell them? And he starts to say something, but he acts shameful. And then Paul says, uh, yeah, well, you know, he, he comes from a depraved family, you know, <laughs> and uh, he starts to make up a story. But then he says, no, that's a lie. There's something else. And then he starts to say, you know, we're drug addicts. <laughs> yeah. And he keeps presenting these tropes of troubled narratives yeah, as if right. that's a reason. And any one of them could have worked in this movie, right? But he's just giving like so many different scenarios that could be plausible. Like in the beginning, he's like, oh, he's a medical student. He can help you with your leg. Yeah. And then later on, Fatty or whatever, he's like, yeah, I'm going to law school once I finish this semester or whatever. At the very end, they start to talk some metaphysics and stuff. So what they're actually studying, it kind of... Uh... Yeah, that's sort of the point. They are just really non-entities or changing mm. or whatever the situation demands or whatever role they feel are playing at the moment. And that's just really delightful, actually. But I think like the scene after the son is murdered and they leave the house and stuff, it's actually very reminiscent of a real-life serial killer Oh, yeah. The Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, who terrorized several citizens in California in the 70s. And what he would do is he would go in and torment these families. Very much like this, actually. Okay. He was only one guy, though. And there was a sexual component to it. He would sort of rape the wife while the husband was tied up. And mm. what he would do was put plates on his back. Mm. And if you heard the plates sort of uh, rattle, then he would go and kill them or whatever. Or he would threaten to. But a lot of what he did was just threats. Mm. Eventually, he started killing people. But a lot of his victims that were most traumatized were just because of all the threats and vagueness mm. of what he did. But specifically, what reminds me of this is he would pretend to leave and just stay silently in the house for hours, mm. like five hours. And once the victims were feeling that he had left, they would get up and untie themselves. And then he would casually like make some noise and make it apparent that he was there. Just like in this movie where Paul throws the golf ball. And the way that traumatized their victims is just really heartbreaking too because these are the types of actions that are so horrible like you already fucking terrorized them and killed their kid or whatever and then you give them an escape like yeah we're gone hmm. but then they eventually of course return yeah, they do actually leave and they come back. But this whole situation has a double layer to it because it's the two characters, but it's also Hanukkah working us as an audience and giving us this kind of relief. We get to see some of the aftermath of that kind of situation, the shock, the terror and like the impossibility of going back to a normal life after something like that anyway. I mean, they do eventually get killed, but you kind of got to taste what the life might have been like, how damaged they would be from the situation leading up to their son. 
being yeah. killed. And it's very well played. And of mm. course, they were married in real life too. I didn't know that. And actually, it's quite sad, actually, a story of most of the main actress in this movie died very young and tragically. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super sad. Rish Mia, he died of cancer at like age 54 or something oh. in like 2009. And then a year later, Susan Lothar committed suicide. And Frank Gehring, who plays sort of the more chubby intruder, mm. he, he had a lot of struggles with alcoholism and stuff and mm. died at the age of 38. Oh, really? So a lot of these actors died tragically, and it's really heartbreaking, actually. I think, actually, Susan Lothar died in 2012 or something. And Ulrich Mia actually died right as he was getting ready to play a role in The White Ribbon, which was actually mm. written for him. And he had to cancel because he, he was dying of cancer. So it's just really sad. Yeah, uh, that's really the way sad. These actors who are so good mm. died so tragically. And also, they were like friends with Miguel Honig, yeah. so it was really heartbreaking for him, too. And you could tell Ulrich Mihe, he was a Hanukkah regular. He doesn't have a lot of regulars, but he also played the father in Benny's video, where he's in kind of a different mode, a bit more of a strict, kind yeah. of unflexible type. In this one, he's much more of a, let's say, normal, warm and empathetic uh, person. Yeah, very human character. Yeah. Well, I would say Arnold Frisch's character in Benny is yeah. almost... Exactly the same as he is in this movie, sort of this psychopath <laughs> uh, that doesn't really have any emotional reaction to anything. But it's funny, actually, when Arnold Fish got on set for this movie for Funny Games yeah. and he met uh, Urish Mia, Urish Mia told him, Benny's revenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty funny. So they had a good sense of humor about it. Yeah. Seems like they had a good rapport, all uh, of them. They seem like really nice people, all yeah. of them. So it's really sad. And uh, I would say Arno Fish just seems like a really good guy when you yeah. listen to him in interviews. He seems like just this really friendly and nice, nice guy. So it's sad that he's like the only remaining <laughs> lead in this movie. A lot of these uncomfortable, unpleasant films that we're talking about, you know, the director is typically a really great director. And in the situation on the set, a lot of the times, even though it looks really intense to us, I mean, it's a comfortable atmosphere where people feel safe and they are very vulnerable in front of the camera. For that to work, usually you have to feel in a safe space. Yeah, I think there's this idea that there's incredibly outmoded and honestly pretty dangerous that you have to be horrific to your actors to really mm. get like when you're working in like violent mm. or like horror or thriller genres like Stanley Kubrick for instance mm. forcing your actors to do like a hundred takes mm. and that's just incredibly unhealthy mm. first of all a lot of the people who worked with Kubrick suffered PTSD but you know as exhibited in this movie you can get great performances just by being oh, yeah. nice to your actors and, oh, yeah. and really treating them like human beings and especially in this movie there seems to be a real sense of giving actors space and time mm. to get into really vulnerable positions and it pays off mm. as you can see with the 10 minute sequence that only took three takes mm. that pays off you know mm. treating the people you work with well yeah for all his filmatic coldness and you know clarity of vision and like a harsh way of relating to his audience Hanukkah is a humanitarian and probably treats people very well I would think yeah, and he also talks about using recurring actors and stuff. He does that because he really feels like it's valuable to have this connection with someone mm. and trusting someone. He, yeah. he really does value that trust you put in people whose work you appreciate. And there's this reciprocal sense of mm. respect and admiration that really is totally synergetic in his movies when he's working with people he really likes and respects. 
Yeah, I mean, like, one of the best things there are is, like, a creative collaboration that is giving you something on several levels and can last over several years. I mean, that's beautiful. Yeah, I'm sure, like, Adam Sandler and his posse also <laughs> has a great time on set and set. I mean, the movies are terrible, but they're laughing all the way to the bank and probably having lots of great vacations as well. Well, I guess I'm more skeptical with that kind of uh, cult of personality, you know, it has a lot of social hierarchy, I think. I mean, I suspect that a lot of those kinds of project i don't know anything specifically about him or <laughs> but you know when you're selling something on one person's fame there's an implicit hierarchy and there's a lot of money involved and oh, yeah, but, i bet there's a lot of people not treated well in that kind of production. i don't know because what i've heard is i mean the, the movies are terrible so i'm basically just scams to get money because yeah, yeah. they're always set in like <laughs> some uh, vacation location yeah, uh, sure. and always sure. have this massive budgets mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. they look like shit but apparently a lot of his friends take good portions of that and he makes sure everybody gets their payday. So apparently he's mm. pretty nice in that regard. But what do you think of like uh, Wes Anderson and stuff? He, he always uses like this recurring mm. pretty famous actors. Yeah, yeah. And he's very invested in like the modes of the actors. Like I'm, I'm not sure he's necessarily infatuated by celebrity, but by their presence. Yeah. He really uses like Bill Murray and Willem Dafoe in these beautiful small roles recurrently. He's really good at seeing how these different actors function in front of the camera. What are their strengths? And he plays off their screen persona in a way that most of the time it's great, you know. And he brings out some of the best stuff. Occasionally with these cameos, it feels a bit on the nose. I think like, what was the last one? Grand Budapest Hotel. I mean, that movie feels like just a celebrity <laughs> fest, right? I do feel like a lot of his movies are like, aren't there some less known, like talented actors you can work with? Mm. But like, you always pick like the cream of the crop or like the, the most well-paid actress in Hollywood. Well, I bet he's kind of a guy who really, he's in love with a form of cinema and like the presence that these people have. Totally. He, he seems really like enamored with the charisma of these mm. larger life actors mm. and, th and that's fair and, I mean if you get good movies out of it that's mm. totally cool too and he often makes some really interesting movies yeah absolutely but yeah, I do like when directors really respect and admire their actors enough to work with them again yeah. and again. And I think that's often a very good sign of oh, a yeah. director. I mean, like, uh, Haneke is the opposite. I mean, he does pick a lot of good art house actors, but not like celebrities. I mean, the one exception is the remake of Funny Games from 2007, where he has Tim Roth and Michael Pitt and Naomi Watts. Yeah, star-studded. It's a shot-for-shot -shot remake, mostly exactly the same. Pretty good but not as good. And I think the main reason for that, at least for me, it's a while since I've seen it. Uh, it's the acting. And that's not because the acting isn't very good in the new one as well, but there's something a little bit more raw and honest about these Austrian actors. Yeah, I, I like a lot of the actors in the remake. Like, yeah. I, I think Michael Pitt is a really good actor. Yeah, they're all but, really but, good. But, but, <laughs> but there's something about the original that feels very, mm. very raw in a mm. way that I guess actors that work in the Hollywood system mm. are often just feel a bit more like they're used to it in mm. a sense, like they're used to the drama of it. Mm. Like uh, Arnold Fish, he was right out of high school, mm. and he had only like only worked in a, like a handful of mm. movies previous to that, and he was really fresh. But I mean, the performance he has in this movie is just phenomenal. Like that's really what stuck with me the first time I saw this movie is his performance mm. as a psychopath. It is so convincing. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some of the mundanity that disappears with a Hollywood cast. It's difficult for them to transcend the knowability of the faces and the experience of their roles. 
I guess the remake kind of demonstrates there's absolutely nothing wrong with their acting in their Funny Games remake. It's great, but it's a different thing and it works better with the somewhat mundane and slightly more raw mode of the original cast, I think. Yeah. And it's subtle. It is subtle. But I mean, it sort of ties in with when you use really well-known names in movies, it can be detrimental, I think. Mm. Like, I remember I saw this action movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he was playing, like, this uh, rural cop. And, like, you, I just didn't buy that role at all. <laughs> like, it was just Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm. Like, he had an Austrian accent, and he was supposed to be this rural American cop. <laughs> it felt so fake. And the same thing with, like, this... I don't recall the name of it, but Robert De Niro and Sylvester Stallone played in this boxing movie from the mid-2000s, I think. Oh, yeah. uh, and it was just absolutely terrible. Mm. And the characters were supposed to be these down-to-earth, guys mm. Sylvester Stallone was this working class guy that of course he was yeah like, and he made sculptures in his free time like you don't buy it in any sense and the artifice is too strong yeah the yeah. artifice is so strong and like that's of course extreme examples mm. of it but I do think that the baggage of having super well known Hollywood faces mm. in your movies can be extremely detrimental in particular movies but you know what's interesting about Funny Games initially you know he made the original one in 97 and the remake in 2007 so that's 10 years difference but he wanted to make the original one in America originally because that was his project. International American media and violence, that was his interest. And when he remade it, the intention was to get a wider audience and therefore, you know, known faces make sense because you sell films based on um, actors. And these, you know, Naomi Watts was at a height of her career. Tim Roth is always interesting, you know. And Michael Pitt was kind of starting to, to rise yeah, yeah, yeah. up. I think this was probably my introduction to his acting. But the problem is, doing a shot-for-shot remake doesn't quite make sense if you're aiming towards an American audience, I think. Because that kind of uh, austere, cold, very analytical mode, it's not so edible. I mean, it works very good for a European art house style. And, like, Americans who are interested in that stuff, they'll find it perfectly fine. But I don't think for reaching a wider audience, it necessarily makes so much sense. No, I mean, his theory was that this type of genre movie, like a thriller movie, yeah. would really like make it big in the USA. And that's just, it's not quite that type of movie. Like, yeah. it's a really well-made thriller, mm. but it's a bit too cerebral, mm. I think, mm. for American audiences. Even though it's like, it's not very cerebral when you watch it. It's very direct and mm -hmm. very good at communicating what's going on. And you can read a lot into a lot of the sort of meta aspects of the movie mm. and stuff, but you don't have to. Like, mm. it's very entertaining. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And very can be viewed as a super simple film. Yeah. But it, it just has so much like social awkwardness and intensity and fourth wall breaking. Right. I mean, the humor is mischievous, but it's also malevolent. It's cynical. It has a cynical sense about it, which I think is a little bit at odds with your typical American blockbuster mode. I mean, he, he said that he made the movie to hurt. Yeah. He wanted to rub it in. Absolutely. And that is not what American thrillers are about. <laughs> they are about being exciting and at the end of the day having a satisfying yeah. conclusion. I mean, you do have some examples like Straw Dogs, which is like your classic American Sam Peckinpah home invasion, which is quite intrusive, quite intense. I mean, it's not up to a new extreme mode of intensity, but it's one of the like classical intense Hollywood production films. Yeah, yeah sure, um, sure. But I'm thinking more about the stuff that Mikhail Honecker seems pretty dismissive of. Yeah. Which are, you know, the run-of-the-mill yeah. American thrillers, which often can be quite entertaining to watch. Mm. I would, of course, posit that the Koreans are much better at mm. making thrillers mm. than the Americans. Well, 
I mean, there's a lot of great American thrills. Yeah, of course. And it, the sort of thriller genre also originates there. So, yeah. of course, of course, of course. But as time has gone on, it, it has become very tropey. Yeah. And I do understand why directors like Bong Joon-ho or Mikael Hanneke wants to subvert, you know, thriller tropes. Yeah. Because thriller is a really cool genre. Yeah. Done right, it's one of my favorite genres of all time. You know, it's interesting. We, several of the other films we looked at, like when you talk about Kevin and Trouble Every Day, they're, they're like these really great directors who take elements of a genre and kind of adapt it into their own style. And, and this is Hanukkah's take on the home invasion, but also to some degree the horror movie. Like you mentioned before, the situation after Peter and Paul have left. Yeah. Anna has run away, the wife, and there's an interesting she, she might have been captured. We don't know quite what happens because the camera cuts away. And then we go back to the husband, George. He's in the living room trying to fix the phone and we hear a sound of a door opening and we don't know what. Could be her, probably not. We get a bad feeling. This movie is just filled with bad feelings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the golf ball just rolls in and that's really like a, a typical horror yeah, moment. Yeah, like totally. Like a child's toy walking or something. But also like in horror movies when mm. like the bad guy's been killed yeah. but then towards the end they are reanimated and yeah. you know, attack one last time. So it has that kind of element. Yeah, I have found it very enlightening to read. I've read a lot of reviews about the original and mm. some about the remake. Yeah. And I think even the criticisms are pretty valid, but at times they are, but they don't seem to want to take the medicine <laughs> Mikhail Honeck is offering no, almost. No, no, no. Like you had Ed Gonzalez who wrote for Slant, who called it like Scream for Art House Aficionados. Which I found like funny, but also like, is that really what you get out of it? Well, I guess, you know, the point of Scream was it was kind of satirizing the slasher film a little bit, but for entertainment value only. And this kind of works with the tropes of the thriller genre. I mean, it's a different mode, but I get what he's saying. I'm not a big fan of Scream, should be said. But What? You're not a Wes Craven maniac? <laughs> I mean, he's done some stuff I like, but it does, you know, very directly comment on like the tropes, like the watching television and saying, yeah, now the girl's going to scream and she's going to be the one who lives or whatever. And this film does the same kind of thing with commenting. Yeah, totally. But I, I would say it's so much more than just the simplistic interpretation of that. But it's not completely without merit. Mm. Another criticism that I found pretty uh, reasonable, which... Mm. Uh, Often I read like reviews of these difficult movies and it's just complete bullshit yeah, all yeah, the time. Yeah. But I find a lot of these criticisms pretty valid. Like this one by Scott Tobias writing for the AV Club in 2002. Mm. Hanukkah implicates everyone but himself. The sadists mm. are presumably desensitized by the media. They call each other Beavis and Butthead. The victims, symbol of wealth, golf clubs, mm. a cell phone, high-tech security system, are turned against them. And most pointedly, the audience is indicted for its bloodlust. Mm. But yeah, Michael Haneke doesn't really, he doesn't seem very critical of himself mm. in this process. And I, I think that's a fair criticism of mm. it, but it's still, a, it doesn't hamper my enjoyment of the movie. Mm. Yeah, so the thing that's interesting about that is when you're discussing critique of violence in media, you know, you talk about all this violent imagery has a negative effect on human beings and desensitizes human beings from violence. Because violence existed a long time before, like, any form of culture existed. It exists before human society Nature exists. is violence. Yeah, and you can't really lay the blame whether or not you get inspired by or it reflects... That kind of is a bit of an empty debate as far as I see it. And some of the intention of auteur cinema in commenting or deconstructing violence in a moralistic framework 
is a little bit, I mean, it's not really effective commentary in terms of changing society. No, and I, w- I would also say that it, it can be viewed as a bit hypocritical. Yeah. I, I would like to just quote one last piece of criticism, mm. which, which was probably the harshest one, but mm. also I wouldn't say completely baseless. This is Anne Hornaday writing for the Baltimore Sun year after the movie was released. Mm. Funny games condescends to its audience like a pretentious preachifying graduate student is in postmodernism. It would help us out of the cultural quagmire we're drowning in if only we could understand its highly convoluted and exclusive language. The core of that criticism is what's the solution here? Mm. Like, yes, you're pointing sort of a finger, but how does this criticism help us? It seems like to draw attention to something without doing anything about it. Okay. And personally, I feel it's completely valid to draw attention well, to something I, without a solution to it. Yeah, yeah, precisely. I mean, I wouldn't say this film is convoluted narratively or filmatically. That's no. just a weird thing to say. No, I don't agree with the assessment at all. But I found the criticism quite yeah. interesting because it does have this tinge of moralism too, yeah. right? So why sit on your high horse if you don't even bother coming up with a solution for yeah. this? I would like to just <laughs> add that the whole idea of criticizing media for violence is just outdated in my view. I think it feels that way a lot for our generation because we've grown up with it so presently. But I think for a lot of people where violence wasn't so present in media, that became like, what are my children watching? This makes me uneasy. I'm worried about their behalf. Right. Not worried about my behalf necessarily. So there's like a generational thing that goes. And it's always like that with music and anything. So yes, certainly. It's a but silly it, part of understanding culture. Certainly. But, but I do feel a lot of that sort of uh, boomerism mm. view on violence in media does sort of emanate a bit from Mikhail Honecker's own viewpoints when he talks about sure. violence in media. But he's not stupid. It's not as simple critique as that. It's not media is bad, violence in media is bad, but he mm. wants us to sort of reflect a bit on it. Yeah, I think. you know, he was born in the 40s, so he's kind of, the people that were kind of making it big when he was growing up, like he was looking a lot to all these classical humanitarian filmmakers like Bergman or these big figures. And I feel that in many ways he's in that mode, but a bit more postmodernist. Sure, and... he's like the one sort of, one of these modernist mm. filmmakers that went all the way into unpleasant and, mm. uh, you know, extreme. Mm. movies and it's interesting because i don't think that viewpoint is incompatible with making transgressive and extreme cinema absolutely not Uh, but it's very interesting in the in the sort of contrast with like i mentioned earlier a Mm. lot of the directors we've talked about who are a lot more guarded and Mm. more sort of postmodernists in their approach to uh, the intention and stuff Mm. yeah and this is maybe him at his most should we say brectarian absolutely where where he's commenting on the form and like this very specific scene where the wife at her lowest point you know she's being forced after the son is killed peter and paul have returned and she is told that she can kind of choose maybe what mode they will use to kill the husband and she's forced to do a prayer and Arno Frisch's Paul, he's kind of preoccupied with telling her about how she should do the prayer and she just has a moment where she gets up, she grabs the gun and shoots Peter, the other guy. And then you see the panic in Paul's eyes. But he's very kind of weirdly preoccupied with finding the remote control. (laughs) And at first that's weird. What's he talking about? He picks it up and then he rewinds. Initially, um, when I first saw it, I mean, it's kind of like, it seems so irrational. That's the only time you see him panic and he seems properly frustrated. Yeah, he's he's stressed out. He needs to find that remote. Yeah. And he just rewinds narrative. And that, as a viewer also, is such a shock. Yeah. 
other way, even though he's been breaking the wall several times before, like winking at us and smiling and asking us, is this genre appropriate? The way to interfere directly with the film material, as he does here, is almost a combination of the experiment that starts, I feel, with Benny's video and using the film media specifically as a way to deal with violence. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I would also say in this movie, and Mikael Haneke has planned this out, the way breaking the fourth wall escalates in this Mm. movie. Yeah. Because in the beginning, when you see Paul turning towards the camera and winking, you might be thinking like, is he winking to someone behind him? Like, mm. like it's not necessarily, like, it's not super explicit. Of course, it is breaking the fourth wall. Mm. But you might play it off as something else. Mm. And also later on, he's like, what do you think about this? And it sort of turns towards the camera. But it might be turning towards one of the family members. <laughs> it's a bit unclear. Like, it could be something. Yeah, I mean, if you weren't expecting it, you might think that this, is this integrated into the plot? Like, uh... Right. But then it just keeps getting more and more explicit about it yeah. to the point where he actually rewinds the killing of his partner in crime and it's interesting that that scene where he's being shot by anna it's incredibly explicit Mm. you see the shooting and the gore and the blood and that's the first time you see that type of violence Mm. portrayed directly in the sort of pornographic manner that Mikael Haneke has discussed and it's interesting because this is an annulled and cancelled and you sort of keep going in the morbid and horrific direction that the movie always takes and Mikael Haneke is very clear about wanting to play with the audience's expectations Mm. and he wants you to feel the framework of this as a movie Mm. you know more and more throughout the movie at the same time Time, you know playing with the audience like a cat playing with a mouse and i think this is actually one of the few examples in any of his films with such explicit violence and the thing about it is that it gives you just the moment of satisfaction it does and you feel relieved because you've several times you've had situation i mean throughout the film he gives you these small moments of potential relief you know, when they leave, but also situation before with the phone almost working. There's a lot of these situations where he kind of says, yeah, there's an opening here. Yeah, Possibly could it, it could. And oh, she even managed to kill one of them. That's great. But with the remote control, he just makes the artifice of it so clearly. I mean, you have zero control. The family doesn't have any chance with these two guys. But we as an audience also are captive to him, Hanukkah. Yeah, we're implicated, and the only agency we really have is to walk away from the movie. <laughs> and he, he actually said, you know, people might walk away from the movie, but I'm making you this movie for the people who need it or the people who don't walk away from the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. And also, I, I find it really funny that, you know, when people saw that scene with Peter getting shot, mm. they stood up and clapped <laughs> <laughs> and cheered. Oh, that's cruel. (laughs) And then, of course, you have the scene right afterwards where it's just made irrelevant. And it's just delightful in the way it plays uh, with audience expectations of relief. And I feel that Harnack reveals himself in a way here. His mischievous nature is very clear in this film. It's often more underlying in his other work. But I think he does have this mischievous side and this interest in fucking with you as an audience. Oh, yeah, Um, totally. Like, this movie is as close as he gets to making like a real life experiment Mm. of a movie his other movies are more movie-ish this is very clearly a real sense of toying with the audience Mm. in a very very explicit way but it's uh it's marvelous and i'm i'm really happy he did it because it's such a cool way of going about this this extreme form of cinema Mm. it's a great movie and probably his most widely seen i think I don't know about numbers, but talking to people, if you ask them, you've seen Hanukkah and you mentioned Funny Games, that's typically the film that they've seen. I mean, he's made a lot of widely seen films, of course, but um, 
using a genre as a way in just accesses a larger audience, I think. Yeah, it's a Trojan horse. And a very effective one in this case, I think. Yeah, I would say like when I talk about Hanukkah with people I know, it's not necessarily maybe their favorite movie of his, but it's always the movie that gets discussed yeah, because yeah. it's the most interesting to discuss. And yeah. we've been doing that for quite a while now. And I would <laughs> just like to say it's, yeah, it's a, an amazing movie, a, just a powerhouse performance by all actors involved, including the child actor, actually. Mm. Um, and uh, They all have great presence. Yeah, totally. And uh, they seem natural as a family and completely in contrast to the psychopathic uh, Laurel and party act and yeah just marvelous so thomas do you have any recommendations for us this fine evening i do i have a not funny game uh, a boring game well <laughs> it's a version of tetris but instead of having four blocks per brick it has six and i'm not sure if there's like an official version i've seen different sometimes i've seen it called hexatris sometimes hexomino i think i just found it as like a web browser game a few years ago and it's um so off-putting like i found this video on YouTube that just shows like an AI doing like its best to clear lines. And I mean, it's so difficult. I mean, like the thing about Tetris, you can get like this neat, organized stuff. You have no chance with these six blocks. It looks familiar, but almost mutated. (laughs) It looks like some kind of perverted version of Tetris. And it just feels so off. Yeah, I remember just feeling almost sick with like just this systemic perversion of fucking up like this perfect (laughs) system. Like it's so untidy, like there's no chance of not getting a lot of these open holes where you can't plug it. And you know, you're lucky to clear two or three lines before it reaches the top. Uh, It just feels so (laughs) off-putting. So that's like a a game that's not funny. It's just off-putting and weird. And I suggest you try it out, if only to just understand why Tetris is really great. (laughs) If you didn't understand so already, this just, it's weird. Tetris is a classic game. Yeah, I think this has 36 different types of blocks. And some of them look kind of like, there's a T, you know, there's an F. And some of them just looks like like a mutant version of like the classic Tetris box. <laughs> yeah, horrid. <laughs> oh, oh my god, that sounds great. How uh, about you? Do you have a recommendation for us? Yeah, I do. I, it's very unpleasant and and just uh, really really dark and sad. Actually, there's an album by Mount Erie called "A Crow Looked at Me." which is uh, Mount Erius, uh, Phil Elverham. And basically, it's a concept album about the death of his wife. And it's just so incredibly heartbreaking. He recorded it in the room his wife died, oh, mostly using her instruments and uh, notes he'd compiled about her and stuff. And it's just, it's so personal and raw that I, I've actually never made it through the entire album. Huh. It's just so incredibly heartbreaking. Well, is it like classical music? What is it like? It's singer-songwriter. Uh, okay. There's a lot of like anecdotes stories about like very specific stuff it's really really beautiful and and good just incredibly sad so yeah, that's my recommendation i would just add as, as a small extra thing like if you've seen funny games the song that plays like the chaotic wild song called bonehead by john zorn that's part of an album called naked city which is kind of this experimental avant-garde thing that has these jazz elements and it's it's a really interesting album it was sort of a band too wasn't yeah, it? yeah yeah 
That's right. And they did several sort of stuff with, you know, different people being involved. And a lot of the songs are really short and they're different modes. Not all of these like crazy intense like that. But it's a very interesting listen. It's it's great, actually, uh, Naked City. I definitely recommend uh, checking it out. Yeah, nice. Double dipping on your recommendations. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, dear listener for listening to us if you want to get in touch you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com the music for this episode was made by Umulium and that's Euskarning and Sverre Ogor we have an album out now actually on Spotify so yeah just search Umulium there and you'll find it that's right you can also check out our Instagram just Unpleasant Movies at Instagram where we put out some uh, occasional movie quizzes, guess the movie type thing, and some of the artwork from the episodes. And that's about it for now. Yeah. So go check Umulium's uh, music. It's really good. That's it for now. Have a lovely evening or day. We'll catch you discussing our next movie. Yeah, which will be The Piano Teacher by Mikkel Hanukkah. The one who received a standing ovation and whom Mikael Haneke felt was not as good a response as people walking out and being <laughs> really obnoxious. But perhaps actually his best movie. <laughs> so that's it for now. Take care and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.